welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host this week, Liz Flora, and today I'm joined by Dr. Rose Ingleton, the founder of skincare brand Rose Ingleton MD. Dr. Ingleton, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Where are you based right now? I'm in New York City. I'm in the NoHo section of downtown Manhattan, the heart of it all. Great. So Dr. Ingleton, before we get started talking about your skincare brand, I thought it would be great to learn about how you got your start in dermatology. Did you always know you wanted to be a doctor growing up? No. Well, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. My father started calling me Dr. Ingleton when I was seven years old. And that was because he saw this aptitude for science and just learning. And he, we've never had a doctor in the family. So he's like, why not dream big? And I set my sights on being a doctor since that age, but being a dermatologist is completely different. I, I emigrated to the U.S. from Jamaica, which is where I was born, uh, to, be, to do college here. And I did all of my college education and then went to medical school and you know all my residency programs and all of that. But I never knew I wanted to be a dermatologist. It really just happened upon me during a clinic session in medical school where I was around another dermatologist and I saw what they did for a living and the lights literally came on. The excitement of being able to see someone, diagnose them usually within minutes, and help them, and have them come back happy was super thrilling to me. And that it had a, a surgical component to it was also uh, very, very much in keeping with what I enjoy doing. I'm very visual, and I'm very uh, physically you know, in tune. I love doing procedures. What inspired you to start your own practice? I... When I was when I graduated, I did not have many offers <laughs> to work for anyone. Um, first of all, I was the first black person to graduate my residency program in dermatology. So when I got out, it was not usual for the world to see black dermatologists. I had no examples really to go by. Um, I don't know if to any extent that led to me not getting offers, but I didn't have any offers for a job. I took a job with this group. And it was the way that it was being led, I wasn't happy with. It felt very much like a mill, you know, rush them in, rush them out, rush them in, rush them out, see as many as you can. Come on, move it, move it, move it. And it wasn't in keeping with my sentiment about how dermatology should be practiced. Um, and so I thought, I don't know anything about business, but I'm going to try to do this on my own. And I was invited to be a part of a practice down in lower Manhattan in Soho, which was very close to where I was living. And I started a practice really like with no money really and very few instruments. I got disposable instruments just in case it didn't work and figured out how to set up a business with no template. <laughs> and lucky for me, I mean, I was extremely, I became very popular very quickly and the word spread and I became so busy that I had to relocate from the shared space I was in after four years because I had too many patients. The other doctors working in the group kind of felt like I was hogging everything. So I moved to my own space and I've just continued to grow and grow on my own since then. Yeah. And I thought it would be great to talk about the unique aspects of your practice. You've talked in the past about how you address psychological impacts on the skin. Did you want to share some details on how you incorporate psychology into skincare? Yes, absolutely. When I was in a college, my major, I, had a, I did a double major. It was psychology and biology, not thinking that I would ever need the psychology part of it. Um, but I realized in my practice that because I do a lot of listening, uh, bit, office visits with me are a little unusual, the first visit. 
not that we have a ton of time, but I, I really want to know why you're there. I, I need time to hear your concerns and then look at your skin and, and then figure out what's best for you and write a prescription basically of the steps I want you to take to get your condition better. And I realized that, you know, the way that I practice, there was a lot of listening, a lot of talking, a lot of getting into the psyche of the person. It's not just what I'm seeing on the skin in front of me. It's what's going on at home. Are they going through some trauma in life? Is there health? Are there other health issues that are coming into play? Are they doing all the wrong things because they don't feel good about themselves? I can pull all of that out pretty quickly by reading body language and also by talking. And it became a part of the way that I practiced. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't realize it was something different from how other people practice, but it is. Um, and patients tell me that all the time. I'm incorporating good listening skills um, and being able to identify when there are other things uh, leading to the result that I'm seeing on their skin. And, you know, I'm able to guide them then, of course, to see, if necessary, a therapist or a behavioral therapist that someone who can help you to change behaviors. Like if you're picking or pulling your hair, pulling your eyelashes out, there are all these little habits that come up when people have that underlying anxiety. And then there are people who are super depressed and they may try to smile through the, op- through the appointment. But if you ask the right questions, you can almost always get to the bottom of, you know, there's some stuff going on in their life that is causing some of what you're seeing and also their lack of self-esteem and their lack of feeling that there's something they could do to help. So I have incorporated it unknowingly (laughs) into my style of practice. And it really is very fulfilling to me because I feel that I get to the bottom of things and I'm much better able to help. And that's probably why I get such great results in my patients. And Dr. Ingelson, you're well known as the dermatologist to the stars with clients including Iman, Chrissy Teigen, and Adriana Lima. Who was your first celebrity client? Of course, I never tell. I don't know how the word got out who these people are because I see them and they're like anybody else in the practice. <laughs> I never say. But um, my first celebrity, wa- they're usually models because I, I took care of a lot of famous models when I just started. That my, my office is located close to a model agency and they would just feed me all the girls and the guys. Um, so I'll just say, you know, famous supermodels <laughs> were my first. And then came the musicians and then, you know, then the TV personalities and then the actors and they, they, they all sent each other. So I built it from there. What they love about me, though, is, is that I'm at my discretion. You know, I really, I, first of all, I'm treating them like I do everyone else. They're not getting the extra special treatment and everybody else gets, you know, regular treatment. But um, I make them feel that their concerns are being attended to. And that whatever they tell me is not leaving the room. And certainly the, the work that I do doesn't look like they had anything done. That's my forte. <laughs> so uh, they, they get treated. They look great. They just always look great. Nobody knows why they look so great. And it's our little secret. So unless you see them coming in and out of my office, you'll never know who comes here. <laughs> And when you're looking at a supermodel's perfect skin, how much of that is based on in-office procedures versus lifestyle versus good genetics? Well, the beauty that we see at first and the bone structure and all of that, that's just their good genetics. Uh, But models live hard, you know, hard lives in terms of the, the pace at which they move, you know, their skin constantly being 
messed with by various makeup artists. People are always trying to give them things for free. So they try a lot of things. Um, so it's a little difficult to, to help them stay clear unless they're the kind of person who's committed to one practitioner and they're going to just stick with what that person's telling them. Uh, most of the challenges though are related to the plethora of, 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 uh, procedures that are being offered to them and that many times they accept. Um, I, I wouldn't say though that most models are doing cosmetic work, you know, fillers and Botox and all that. They're, they're oftentimes just getting on good regimens for their skin, doing facials, doing, you know, some microdermabrasion, things that help to purge the skin and keep their pores clear. And then being on a proper skincare regimen is the other half of it. But I won't say I don't do Botox in models because there are a lot of younger models who I need to do Botox for them because they're squinting in the sunlight when they're doing an outdoor shoot and the photographers and producers are not having it. They're like, you know, stop making that expression. So they're, they're those who I'm doing skillfully small doses of Botox, even small doses of filler to give them a little bit of that little extra that the camera wants. But always I'm trying to do just enough to stay under the radar so they don't look done. What's the average age that they start Botox? Younger than most people. So like in their late 20s, I'm having a number of the girls, the girls especially, but you know, a few guys as well, who will ask for Botox because they want to have a certain look. They want to look, you know, very serious all the time and not look like they're squinting. Or the scenario I mentioned before, where if they're doing outdoor shoots, you know, Victoria's Secrets, when, when we have Victoria's Secrets, <laughs> and a lot of the girls, but, um, you know, that kind of shoot is outdoors usually, and they want to make sure that they're not looking like they're in pain <laughs> or squinting in the camera. And then speaking of skincare regimens, let's talk about your skincare brand. What's the history of the brand? When did you first start thinking about launching your own brand? This was really driven by my patients, right? So I've been a dermatologist in practice for over 20 years. Um, and I have a pattern of treating patients, it seems. I, I realized this after the fact. They present a problem to me. I look at them and then I figure out based on what they're using at home and what I see on their skin, what the best trimmed down method would be to get their skin clear. So I was writing these regimens all the time. Here's what you do in the morning. Get rid of these extra things that you don't need. They don't help our problem here, but let's do these key things. And in the evening you do this. And it was a mix of over-the-counter things, prescription things, and then cosmeceutical things that I would recommend and sell through the office. But patients kept asking, Dr. Angleton, why don't you have your own line? We don't understand. You're, you're clearly able to get us better you know, I don't love this product so much. Can't you do better? So they were nagging, nagging <laughs> me to, to come up and uh, with something that was more tailored and that didn't have a lot of the elements that they didn't want in their skincare products. And I listened. I mean, it took me a while. I started working on my skincare line probably four years ago, four to five years ago, conceptualizing it all on paper, like on a flight from New York to L.A., where I have a lot of time undisturbed, I just kind of sat and wrote out the ideas of how I wanted to create a skincare line. Um, and it, what came to me was that it would be most obvious to try to target the things that were super common. So my skincare line really was inspired to address the most common skincare conditions my patients were asking me to help them with. Even though they all said it differently, I felt like it all came down to four common groups, you know, 
aging skin, of course, right? Everybody at some point asks you in a different way. I have a line. Oh no, but I have loss of volume. I ha- they, they, they were saying the same thing, but their skin was getting older. There's a group of people who are breaking out for whatever reason. They're 20 something or they're stressed or their hormones are crazy or they're pregnant or there are all these reasons. So there was the group of the breakout people. And then there's the group of those who are getting discoloration in their skin. So things that relate to either sun or hormones or having had a breakout and you're left with dark marks, that is like the most common thing I get asked to help people with. And then the the other category I found was, you know, just skin that's a little persnickety, you know, always too dry, always too irritated, just needs a little more TLC. And that to me is a category unto itself. And I thought, you know, why don't I create something that's simple, easy to use, Clean, of course, right? So we're not going to have a lot of the ingredients that people don't want. They don't want the parabens. We don't want the sulfates. We uh, would prefer that our products are vegan if we can get them vegan. Um, but if, if I didn't make it effective, the products were not going to work. So I, I could adhere to all these requests because I'm listening to my patients. I wanted to make sure we got all the clean things taken care of, but I wanted to make sure the products were effective and really easy to use so that they would use it. Uh, so I created four booster serums, each targeting one of those four categories I mentioned, and the world's best moisturizer, <laughs> which I benchmarked based on all the moisturizers my patients kept telling me they were using. You know, I keep a list of the favorites, and I test those out, and I hear what they like, and then I just sought to do one better. So I take out all the ingredients that are not serving us and put in a lot of the things that are the nutrients for the skin. So that's where I started. I started with uh, four serums and a moisturizer that are very targeted to specific skin complaints. We'll be right back after this break. Did you want to go into specifics about the formulation process and how you selected which ingredients to include? Sure. Um, I, I Once I categorized into those four groups um, to address the specific skin concerns, I selected ingredients that were things that, that were tried and true. These are all dermatologists' favorites, um, but I handpicked them. And I, I, you know, working with a chemist from day one, starting at, from scratch, you know, I said, here are the must-haves. I want this, this, and this in there. Anything else that's put in should only be helping to benefit the product, but I don't want any of the unclean ingredients added just for me to get results. I need to have enough of these active ingredients in there so we will see results. But I want the products to be gentle. I want it to be so gentle that you can use them every day. Because that was a big problem with a lot of the things that I would recommend that were made by others. Yes, they're good. But patients would oftentimes complain about irritation or they don't like the smell or all kinds of reasons. They don't like how it feels, the finish. Uh, So I tried to address all of the things that I was hearing. In, in, in the process of producing a product, since I had the liberty of starting from scratch, I could say, here's what I want and here's what I don't want. Um, so I selected ingredients that are tried and true, but throwing back additionally to my Jamaican heritage. So I mentioned earlier, I'm from Jamaica and my inspiration to of how I was going to, to lay this line out came to me while I was by the coast in Jamaica, just lying there trying to conceptualize and the colors and the inspiration and everything that came to me came 
from the feeling I got by lying at the, at the shore. So I incorporated colors from that into the packaging, but I also incorporated ingredients that are fruit extracts that are very much reminiscent of my growing up in Jamaica. And also I realized they, these were ingredients that I was using in dermatology anyway. These are all the things we love. So I created this thing called the Jamaican Superfruit Blend, which is a, 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 a grouping of fruit extracts plus some hyaluronic acid into a complex that I just sprinkled in all of the products. And that is my paying homage to Jamaica, but also, you know, using things that we do use in dermatology that we know are effective. Um, just for storytelling purposes, I'm sure that that's a nice tie into why, why me and why this product. <laughs> And for the average person, as a dermatologist, what are your thoughts on how people should balance the over-the-counter products with prescription skincare products? Well, I, you know, when, when I designed my skincare line, it was really meant to complement the over-the-counter and prescription regimen. I often will tell my patients, you know, first of all, I want to know what they're using. And it'll be a hodgepodge. Many times they come with 15 products. I have no idea how you use 15 products, but it's a hodgepodge of over-the-counter things. And then if necessary, I may have to introduce prescription things. Um, and I want in the end for, for them to have a simplified regimen, because if it's simple, they're going to do it. And if they do it, they'll get results, especially if it's been prescribed for them. So having over-the-counter options are always going to be important. Not everything needs to be prescription grade. The prescription things are very specific, right? I sometimes have to treat actual acne or an actual melasma or, you know, there are issues, rosacea. I have to give you prescription grade things for that, but then you can supplement and complement that with things like the serums in my line that are going to give you the elements of hydration or skin calming and, you know, reduction of fine lines, like the more beauty related as, uh, outcomes. So, it's very often, it's very rare actually for me to ever just prescribe someone a prescription of a retinoid, for example, and say, that's it. That's all you need because people need all their steps addressed. They need to cleanse their skin. They need to wear sun protection. They need, you know, some extra moisture if they're going to be using a lot of these treatment products that we prescribe in medicine. So it's almost always a mix of things when I, when I prescribe a regimen for someone. Tell me about accessibility and access to over-the-counter skincare products. Did you want to talk about your retail strategy? You're in so many um, retailers, including everything from Revolve to Net-A-Porter. Did you want to talk about how you chose your retailers and how that makes products accessible to the average customer who might not be going into the dermatologist? Yeah, when I started off, we were just direct to consumer. It was on our website, rosemdskin.com. And I put a little quiz on there to help people navigate which of the products was best for them. And that was the closest I could get to you seeing me in the office, right? You couldn't see me, but you can go online. I designed the quiz. You can figure out what you need. The retailers started approaching me um, after the lockdown, <laughs> really. So we were only in, in the marketplace for about four months or five months before everything went into lockdown. And the retailers actually reached out to me before I reached out to them. And it was wonderful because most of them wanted to do online, which is great, right? Nobody's going into stores. It was 
amazing that I, in the space of about six months, I was in probably six of the most major retailers. Uh, I started off with smaller ones like Knockout Beauty came to me, but then Revolve came to me. And then the Neiman Marcus and the Nordstrom's came to me. I'm not with Nordstrom's, but they were trying to bring me in there. Um, but the, the, the cherry on, on my Sunday <laughs> was Sephora. Uh, when Sephora approached me, um, that was right at the height of their fi- taking the 15% pledge to bring on, you know, try to get representation of brands from founders like me um, on their shelves. And it was, it was, it's been a wonderful partnership, but that I saw as my way of getting my products to the largest possible audience. Cause I mean, the entire U.S., but also they have international markets as well. Um, my products are in Net-a-Porter, which is, you know, they're British based, but they take care of a lot of, uh, the, the APAC nations and, and even wherever in the world that they can start send the stuff. Um, it's, it's been very, very helpful to me because my little direct-to-consumer side can really only service the U.S. effectively. I think being in these in these um, retailers where they're putting a lot of attention uh, to the brands and to the brands that are founded by women and founded by minorities, people of color, has really helped my cause to get the message out more quickly and to a broader audience. Um, so... That's, that was my strategy to get into retail, but I never thought that it would happen as quickly as it, as it has. It's really been something. And the brand, you know, the retailers are also supporting. They're not just putting your stuff on the shelf and then leaving you out there to kind of flail away and hope that you float. They're, they're really, for the most part, stepping up and offering to support, you know, getting me on Instagram lives with various influencers and celebrities or and it's it's been just amazing especially with Sephora I'm just super thrilled and hoping for the day when I can be big enough because we're still very small big enough to be on shelf in all of these locations and what has the scaling process been like with all of these new retail partners joining so quickly and do you take outside investment so it was interesting how I even started right because I I basically used my funds. I had some savings and I took on some friends and family investors because I didn't realize before that it would require as much money as it did just to even launch those first five SKUs. Um, there are so many elements, the product development element, packaging design, branding, getting a logo, getting all the testing done for all of your products before you can start selling it to the, to the world. And then there's the uh, distribution side of it. There's so many elements that I, as a practicing dermatologist, had not really thought through. But I've learned. I, I, I built a team around me, uh, mostly consultants who come in and work on projects. Uh, and um, at this point, I'm just finishing up my second round of friends and family investing. And I'm going to finally go out and talk to those institutional investors to get the kind of money that I need in order to scale. Because now that I'm in these big retailers, I'm realizing I'm playing with the big boys and I really need to be able to perform and be involved in all of these promotional efforts that they have that are available to me. But if I'm not able to afford them, I can't move forward with that. So, and and then also to create new products and then to promote them appropriately. And 
it's just, it's a big deal. I'm running two companies right now. So, um, you know, it's, it's very challenging. Uh, my dermatology practice is super busy and, um, it's a blessing that the skincare company has been growing so rapidly, but I am going to have to take on some, some full-time help, some more full-time help to really make this continue to grow. And what have you seen over the course of your career in terms of average consumer awareness of skincare ingredients and interest in skincare products, especially these doctor-founded, science-focused skincare products? Oh, our consumers are so savvy. I mean, the questions that come to us on our our um, our social media page about ingredients and what this does and how much of this. And it's like total not next level. And I, I'm sure that's primarily because we have so much inundation on social media. You know, a lot of people say they're experts and they put a lot of information out there. Nobody knows what to listen to. It's so hard. Even for myself as a dermatologist, I get on social media and really everyone presents themselves as experts. And they may not have any education or it's just, you know, trial and error in their bathroom with this and that and the other thing, but they speak with confidence and everyone believes what they read. So the, 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 the landscape's gotten a little confusing for me. And I'm sure that, you know, people have gotten much savvier because there's so much being presented. Detailed articles in magazines, right? All of, all of the online avenues that we have to gather information is, is, um, they're, delving a lot deeper than they ever have into the science behind ingredients and the why, you know, and uh, why is this better than that? But I think what um, consumers have also appreciated is uh, physicians stepping into the space and speaking as true authorities on the areas that they're experts in. Uh, dermatologists creating skincare lines, I mean, doesn't get much more senior than that. You know, we're we're in it. We're in the science of it. Um, that's really all I can say. It's just really the science is, is being driven uh, in, in all the products that are coming out now. And we really have to speak to ingredients often because people know exactly, no matter how long the name is, you know, hyaluronic acid. Like how long did it take for them to start throwing that around? You know, but Neutrogena took it and put it on the air. And now everybody knows that word, a niacinamide. And, you know, they start, they, people really want to know, like, what's this about? How's it going to help me? Why does your product not have it? Uh, so I think it, it speaks well for me because I listen. I listen to my patients. They're the best focus group ever. You know, my patients tend to be people who read a lot and they're very much cutting edge. So they challenge me. And in their challenge to me, I created the skincare line, trying to answer a lot of these very specific nitty gritty things that they've been asking about. Do you feel like there's ever any misconceptions that you have to address that people find online or in <laughs> random sources? All the time. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, you know, one that came to mind, just as you said that, is people think that everything that is good to eat, that's good for your body, can just automatically be translated into being good for your skin. That you could just put it on your face. And if it does this for your insides, it's going to do this for your skin. Not true. <laughs> 
And if I were just to say, you know, what I commonly see as a problem is, is, is really that. But the more common thing is over application. So they learn a little bit about everything. And then they start layering everything on top of each other. So someone will come in with a 13-step a program using all kinds of actives on their skin. And they're putting them all on because they read somewhere that this is good for you and that's good for you. And that's good for you. And before you know it, we have raw skin that's peely, dry, irritated. And if you have skin of color, any kind of irritation leads to tons of discoloration that will take us a long time to get rid of. So uh, I think what what has happened from having all this knowledge is that people are overwhelmed. They're trying to do the best they can for their skin, but they inadvertently end up with too many things and that creates new problems. And so, you know, just, I think we should just rely on our experts a bit more and try to have some, some guidance on how to simplify and, and keep regimens very focused on what your particular problem is. Not what that superstar or that supermodel's problem is. What is your actual skin issue? Let's talk about how we can fix exactly what your skin is presenting to us. And it doesn't have to take 15 steps. Um, you know, that just made me think of something to this. Um, when I created my moisturizer, it was what I had in mind was to create a one step, like a multifunctional thing, so that you didn't need to do 14 steps to get a particular result. So I'm really into products that do multiple things. So hydrate, but also help you with a little bit of radiance, uh, you know, with the glow of your skin, helping you with texture. Like it, there's a little bit of extra added in. So a simple product that does only one thing might make it necessary for you to use three or four other things to get the result that you, you want. But I'm very much about keeping it concise. So I do multifunctional products. And I'll continue to do that, actually. That's part of my plan going forward. And I also wanted to get your thoughts on the luxury skincare market. Do you feel like there's more focus now on experts and ingredients as opposed to luxury branding with expensive skincare? I would say so. Um, because, you know, as we were mentioning earlier, that um, people are very, very inquisitive about ingredients. They've learned the names. They're seeing the same names over and over mentioned in articles and online, and they are equating ingredients with results. And so they, I think that the, the focus is now going to, is, is tending towards um, the ingredient story and what that, what, what, what can this person do for me? What do they know that they can teach me and, and convince me that the product is going to help my skin? As opposed to just having, you know, beauty branding, like just because you're famous, I guess. I mean, there's a lot of that, um, you know, where you don't necessarily have to have any knowledge about skin to create a skincare line. You just have to be famous. You're a famous singer, you're a famous model, and you're brandable. <laughs> so, um, but I think that the, the, the trend is more towards those with the knowledge base whether they're the physicians or the estheticians of the world, but people who have hands-on knowledge and years of it, uh, of, of how to take care of skin. And I think the, lux the luxury market is seeming to tend in that direction. Yay for me. <laughs> so Dr. Ingleton, I think we have time for one more question. 
What's next for you for the rest of 2022? Do you have more products in the pipeline? Are you pursuing international expansion? What are your goals for the rest of the year? I'm absolutely creating new products. So last year, there was just so much hiccuping around getting things to move from point A to point B that my new products did not make it into the marketplace. But in the next few weeks, my cleanser will be launching. I have the most brilliant brightening uh, cleanser. It's really great for just gentle exfoliating and, and getting your skin. It takes makeup off. It takes dirt off. It's just a great everyday moisturize, uh, cleanser. Sorry. I also have an exfoliating skin tonic coming out. That is really great. Um, but both of these were worked on last year. We just couldn't get them out because of the various movements that were prevented because of the pandemic. I have my sunscreen I'm getting started to work on because, you know, dermatologists, we nag you constantly about having your sunscreen, eye cream coming. There are a lot of things in the pipeline and I never want to make it such that people are no longer doing simple. Cause remember, I started off saying I want simple, clean and effective. Um, but there are things that are missing and I, and I guide what's next based on what my patients ask for or the users are asking for. They're constantly asking, so what do I wash my face with now that you gave me these beautiful serums and this moisturizer? Oh, but what about my sunscreen? <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to just develop in a very organic way, but addressing the needs again of, of what the consumers are asking me for. And in terms of international, absolutely. That is my the next grail, the holy grail. Um, that's part of what will happen after we get funded because we're just now about to go out and ask you know, we, we've proven the model, it's worked, we're selling well, and this is what we could do with a small budget. Can you imagine what we can do if we're really funded? Uh, the, the Caribbean market is, is unobvious. Uh, the, the market in the Middle East and, of course, Europe, we're already in Europe because of Net-a-Porter. Uh, but, yeah, there's so much more to come, and it's people are tapping at the doors. I, I really... Uh, at this point, I'm not able to expand into many more retailers because I have an exclusive arrangement with Sephora that I would like to adhere to until, you know, I don't have to anymore. But we're not really allowed to go out to a lot of the big retailers around the world. We want to build what we have so far. I'm in eight retailers and they're huge, <laughs> you know, all the prestige locations. But the, the dream is always to, to just continue to expand and allow more people in the world to have access to the products. Well, Dr. Ingleton, thank you so much for being here today. And we look forward to seeing all the new developments with the brand in the coming year. Thank you. This was a wonderful little chat. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit that button.